Oscarville, Georgia, Vanport, Oregon, and Coaliga, Benson, and Susanna, Alabama. You've probably never heard of these five small towns before, and that's okay. I've lived in Virginia just about all of my life, and there are a bunch of small towns and cities that I've never heard of. So what do these small towns all have in common? Three things. Number one, they're all historically black towns. Number two, they're all no longer around because they were destroyed. And number three, they're all underwater. Oscarville, Vanport, Benson, Kawaliga, and Susanna are some of the cities often referred to as drowned towns. And these are just five, but there are actually over a hundred of these cities that, although they aren't all underwater, they've all been razed to the ground and completely destroyed. How did this happen? Well, what each of these cities also has in common is that they're all towns that were founded or populated by African-Americans during the Jim Crow era, and they were all erased by the actions of white supremacy. Oscarville, Georgia was a thriving black community founded by freed blacks after the Civil War, and it existed until 1912. In September of that year, two incidences of rape involving white women that many whites believed were attacked by black men sparked a firestorm of white rage that would eventually destroy and displace the 1,100 blacks of Oscarville. Many of them were harassed, murdered, and eventually they were driven out of their community by white terrorists who called themselves Night Riders, rendering the community a ghost town for decades until the abandoned land was sold to the government, flooded, and eventually a lake, Lake Lanier, named for a poet and Confederate soldier, was built on top of the former town. Benson and Susanna, Alabama were flourishing black communities which were all destroyed with the completion of the Martin Dam and the creation of Lake Martin by the state of Alabama. Just between these three incidences, thousands of black lives and even deceased black bodies were affected as several homes, schools, colleges, churches, and businesses were destroyed and cemeteries full of black bodies were disturbed. Through the years, and even currently, Many people who live in each of these areas believe them to be haunted. And this destruction wasn't just confined to the South. Even in New York, a black community called York Hill was raised by the city in order to create the Central Park Reservoir. In the pursuit of equality and liberty in America, it has long been a struggle for blacks post-slavery to obtain and sustain our own land and communities in this country. White supremacy and systemic racism has hindered and even destroyed many of those efforts, including what we've seen with drowned towns, but also with historically successful black communities like Wilmington, North Carolina and Tulsa, Oklahoma, which were destroyed by riots and insurrections by whites. In addition to this, thousands of black farmers have been forced off of their land, 16 million acres total, and have experienced discrimination from the USDA, both in applying for loans and in filing discrimination claims. If property ownership has been a core facet of the American dream, and the possession of private property is a cornerstone of our nation, then despite blacks being emancipated from slavery, the path to true freedom has been filled with several major roadblocks. But what if there was a land a territory or a nation that was designated specifically for black Americans who were the descendants of slaves and those oppressed by racism in this country. A promised land. That's a question that's not unfamiliar to black people in this country for as long as we've been here. But imagine, 
What if these drowned towns were suddenly resurrected from their watery graves and became havens of promise, safety, and prosperity for black people again? Well, that's something like what Derrick Bell describes in his parable that we're looking at in this episode titled The Afrolantica Awakening from his book Faces at the Bottom of the Well. In the face of so much disappointment that's come from these devastating moments of the loss of land and property, what can we learn about the obstacles that black people have faced on the road to calling this land our own? And what can black people learn for our continued survival in this country? We'll be back in a moment. Discouraging for our young people, but it's, it's like racism is permanent. You know, which moment I think that, that that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying at, at its root, it hasn't. That's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken taken different forms, uh, the subordination takes different forms okay. than it did. Okay. But, so, uh, but this is a, and it's not because all white people. begins as oceanographers in the Atlantic Ocean reported the rumblings of a large landmass that was slowly appearing from beneath the water. Initially, the reports were dismissed by scientists, but many started believing that it was the fictional lost continent of Atlantis. One day, the new continent arose out of the ocean like an erupting volcano. Its appearance was accompanied by large clouds of steam and mist. Planes flew over the land to investigate, finding that the new land was filled with beautiful beaches, tall mountains, and was already populated with wildlife. After conducting several satellite tests, scientists believed the continent contained gold and silver, and, as can be expected, the nations of the world immediately descended upon the new landmass. But as several explorers made their way onto the land, they were prohibited by nature and began to experience difficulty breathing and losing consciousness. The air pressure, Bell says, estimated at twice the levels existing at the bottom of the sea, threatened human life. One survivor explained that it was like trying to breathe under the burdens of all the world, a depiction that was the take on special social significance not initially apparent. As the most recent technological advances failed to make the environment habitable, the U.S. Navy attempted to access the land from underwater. Divers swam underwater until they reached one of the land's rivers, and upon coming to the surface, the divers also experienced shortness of breath. Too far into the land, they struggled making it back to the ship, losing consciousness until their chief, Ensign Martin Shuford, towed his fellow divers back to the submarine. Shuford had no trouble breathing and said he actually felt energized by the water and after being checked for any abnormalities, he was hailed a hero. But the only difference between Shuford and his crew was that he was black, 
a factor that wasn't given much attention in the coming days. Several nations made up of people of color also tried pursuing the island, including people from Africa, but they too experienced the same near-death results. When the U.S. sent a team of four African Americans into the continent, it was confirmed that the toxic effects of the environment had no effect on black Americans. The all-black crew felt free and even stayed on the land longer than their mission required. They now referred to this new landmass as Afrolantica. Black Americans began wondering if this was the promised land, and all the parallels with the people of Israel in the Bible became that much more striking. Black ministers began proclaiming it as a providential haven for black people. But not all blacks share the same sentiment. Some who opposed black immigration to the new land stated that by abandoning the United States to move to Afrolantica, black people would be leaving an established civilization, one that they helped contribute to, for a wilderness. America was black people's land as much as it was for whites, whether they liked it or not, and moving to Afrolantica was giving up on the labor of our ancestors and surrendering our rights that so many had died to achieve. As conversations about immigration began gaining steam in the country, a pro-immigration group introduced legislation that would give a reparation subsidy of $20,000 to any black citizens wishing to move to Afrolantica. It was opposed by those who felt that the program was unconstitutional because it, according to Bell, offered benefits based on race without citing a compelling state interest to justify a suspect racial classification. The legislation was never enacted, but it began a national conversation about Afrolandica that caused it to become the center of a larger conversation about civil rights issues in America. There were two sides in the conversations, pro-immigration and anti-immigration, with whites and blacks on both sides. Pro-immigration blacks looked at the immigration movements led by historical black figures such as Paul Cuffey, Martin Delaney, and Marcus Garvey. Blacks who were anti-immigration stated that although several immigration movements had been seen and promoted throughout history, most blacks never actually left the country. They went on to propose that initially, immigration of blacks was started by whites who had sent 1,400 blacks to the colony of Liberia by 1830. They believed that black people shouldn't give up the struggle so easily as our presence in the country helped to make significant strides pertaining to civil rights for all people. They argued that the past was the past, and the future concerning blacks and civil rights legislation in this country looked bright. The deepest economic problems in our country had moved from race to class, according to anti-Afrolanica blacks, and racial discrimination was fading. But has it faded entirely, is what pro-immigration blacks wanted to know? Or was America going to continue to prioritize whites and their interests at the banquet table and leave black people to fend for the scraps? The pro-immigration side proceeded to use their greatest argument, President Abraham Lincoln, who believed colonization would resolve the issue of slavery and who also supported and promoted legislation for the relocation and colonization of blacks because it would be in the best interests of both blacks and whites who both suffered, according to Lincoln. When Lincoln brought a group of black leaders together at the White House, his aim was to convince the freed blacks that colonization was best for blacks because they, although free, suffered from whites. 
and white northerners suffered from the presence of freed blacks and feared that they lose their jobs and their livelihood to them. And so the pro-immigration stance was, well, whites don't want us here, so now here's our chance to leave. But not before the anti-immigration groups responded with their biggest argument, Frederick Douglass. They showed how Douglass, who lived during the same time as Lincoln's colonization meeting with black leaders, opposed immigration. Douglass stated in his paper, The North Star, that, quote, we are here and here we are likely to be. To imagine that we shall ever be eradicated is absurd and ridiculous. We can be remodified, changed, and assimilated, but never extinguished. We repeat that we are here and that this is our country. We shall neither die out nor be driven out, but shall go with this people, either as a testimony against them or as an evidence in their favor throughout their generation. We are clearly on their hands and must remain there forever. But to their use of Douglas, pro-immigration advocates highlighted how throughout history, black people in America had migrated throughout the country and had always been met with opposition and trouble. From the Underground Railroad to the Great Migration, every movement of blacks for a better life was filled with stories of frustration and negative reactions by whites. The pro-immigration groups recounted how some black nationalist groups in the 20th century pursued the idea of black immigration to another state and were met with the hostility of whites. Back and forth, the arguments continued until eventually several black people were ready to move to Afro-Atlantica, leaving behind most blacks who weren't. As black people anticipated the coming exodus, black pride began to rise in the country. Televised reports showed several black people visiting the new land that they would soon make their home. This was pride that was viewed negatively by whites, who viewed it as arrogance or blacks being uppity. Some whites responded by attacking and causing riots in black communities. A cooler, yet equally hostile response was displayed through opinion polls and talk shows. Black people remained unsurprised at the response, with one leader saying, As with so much else, we are treated as aliens in our own country. Rather than view our ability to survive on the new land as a major victory for America, whites see it as a loss for them and a dangerous advantage for us. Conservatives began to whisper that the new nation could become another Cuba, a small island that would keep America and its power at bay. There was also the fear of Afro-Lantica's people combining with the colonized colored peoples of the world against America in an effort to defeat colonialism. Conspiracies were launched against Afro-Lantica, but were found unsupported and failed to materialize. In preparation for the move, blacks who desired to move and those who didn't began to pool their resources together to build communities in the land. Interpreting the collaboration as a threat stoked by the underlying fears of whites, government and corporations placed obstacles in the way of blacks, with immigration officials warning blacks about sacrificing their citizenship if they moved and the difficulties of returning to America if they wished to come back and visit others. The movement was attacked with civil suits and criminal charges, yet amidst the attacks, seen before against movements like Marcus Garvey's, black people pulled together and overcame. And on a sunny July 4th morning, Bell says that out of this miracle of cooperative effort was organized and implemented the Afro-Lantica Armada, a 
thousand ships of every size and description loaded with the first wave of several hundred thousand black settlers. But in the hopes of a new home on the horizon, the expectant black settlers of Afro-Lantica never reached its shores. The island was beginning to plunge back into the sea. The immigrants watched. Many Americans watched from their television sets at home as the large landmass was no more, as it sank beneath the sea. But instead of dominating despair, in addition to the sadness and sobriety, there was satisfaction. As the ships turned around and headed back to the shores of America, the black people aboard the boats and still in their homes realized the power that they had in banding together. Afrolantica was not a landmass, it was a people, a state of mind. And as the ships made their way back to America's shores, the former settlers remember the words of Frederick Douglass, who said, we are Americans, we are not aliens. We are a component part of the nation. We have no disposition to renounce our nationality. Together on the shores of America, black people both returning and welcoming those who returned were inspired with an infectious zeal and self-confidence to press on and possess themselves. Afrolantica was no hollow mirage, but it was a reality and a people within America. We'll be right back. story. It's one of my favorites. And it's like the other side of the coin to the space traders parable. What do I mean? Well, both stories are about blacks and immigration. The space trader story is about involuntary immigration as black people are legally and forcefully boarded onto spaceships and then sent out of the country just like our ancestors. And the Afro-Lantica awakening is about black people voluntarily leaving the country for a better life in a new land. What this story highlights more than anything is the ongoing conversation black Americans have been having about immigration and our relationship to this country. Is this land truly ours? After all, we were brought here in chains from Africa and due to white supremacy and colonialism, we were stripped of our African heritage, our language and our culture. And over time, this country has become our home. This nation was built on the bodies of millions of black people, and we've contributed both voluntarily and involuntarily to its existence and success, while at the same time demanding our rights to be recognized as equal human beings and citizens of this country. And so as long as black people have been in America, the question has always been, should we stay in this country that we were involuntarily brought to and yet are inextricably connected with, or should we leave? and either return to Africa or find another place to relocate. If we relocate, where should we go? North, west, east, south? Is staying or leaving best for black people? Just as Bell highlighted in this story, this conversation goes back for centuries and the black community has never been monolithic on the issue of immigration. In 1780, in the colony where there were more enslaved and free blacks than in any other, the Free African Union Society was founded in Newport, Rhode Island, and in 1787, they began to raise funds to establish a settlement for blacks in Africa. 
1816, one of the men Bell mentions in the story, Paul Cuffey, a black minister and businessman, worked with the British who had established a colony for black Londoners and Americans in Sierra Leone. And eventually, Cuffey, along with 38 free black colonists, moved to Sierra Leone. Black colonization efforts continued throughout the 1800s through organizations such as the African Colonization Society that by 1867 had sent more than 13,000 blacks to the colony of Liberia. And also during this time, some 6,000 blacks had relocated to the newly independent nation of Haiti, believing it to be the best place for blacks to thrive. In the 1840s, Henry Bibb, a free black abolitionist, worked to convince blacks to move to Canada both before and during the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Martin Delaney was a black abolitionist who, after the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act, initially encouraged blacks to immigrate to Central and South America, and then later on to Africa. When President Lincoln invited the black leaders to the White House to discuss the founding of a colony in the Caribbean, although many of them opposed the plan, abolitionist Henry Highland Garnet supported Lincoln's plan, believing that it would save blacks from being returned to slavery. In the late 1800s, black politician and newspaper owner E.P. McCabe moved to Kansas, seeking to eventually make the territory of Oklahoma an all-black state. McCabe's plans never came to fruition, but several thriving black towns were established along with the founding of Langston University. Contrary to being pro-immigration, there were also black leaders who opposed colonization and leaving the country. Bell records Frederick Douglass's remarks in the story about black people neither dying or being driven out of this country. But there were also black leaders, like newspaper founder Thomas Hamilton, who, while permitting discontented blacks to leave the country and move to Haiti, said that he and others would continue to fight against slavery on American soil, stating that to leave what we believe to be our post of duty would be criminal and cowardly. There were also many black and white abolitionists like Nathaniel Paul and William Lloyd Garrison who saw colonization as an anti-black movement that served as a way for slavery to be protected and perpetuated in the United States through the removal of all freed blacks. In the 20th century, Back to Africa movements were led by Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican-born black nationalist leader who started the Universal Negro Improvement Association, an organization focused on the decolonization of black people in America through promoting black pride and economic opportunity. Garvey had nearly six million supporters and desired to establish a black UNIA settlement in Liberia. He purchased a fleet of ships and raised over $10 million but ultimately his efforts were hindered when he was convicted of mail fraud, sentenced, pardoned by the president, and then deported from the country. In the 1960s, black Muslims purchased two large farms, totaling close to a thousand acres in Alabama to the disgust and protest of their white neighbors who threatened retaliation, filed civil suits, and brought the land surrounding the farms, eventually causing the Muslims to sell the land. In 1968, the Republic of New Africa was formed by the Malcolm X Society, named after the black nationalist leader who was assassinated three years earlier. And the Republic of New Africa aimed to create a black state in the predominantly black southeastern portion of the United States that would be funded by reparations from the federal government 
and would give blacks a choice as to whether they wanted to remain citizens of the United States. So amidst the different perspectives surrounding the black immigration movements, it's important to point out that black people have immigrated all throughout the country in almost every era of American history, pursuing freedom, equality, and a better life for themselves. Movements like the Underground Railroad brought thousands of escaped slaves to the north and across the border into Canada, and the Great Migration saw millions of blacks move from the south to the north, midwest, and western parts of the country after emancipation and into the 20th century. Much like the Afro-Lantica awakening, each movement saw black people pulling together, empowering each other, and taking control of their future while facing constant opposition that came from hostile whites who sought to keep blacks in subjugation. So just as Bell mentioned in the story, black immigration wasn't just an idea supported by many blacks, but also by whites. And in looking at the theory of interest convergence, it could be argued that black immigration was only as successful as it was throughout history because it was supported by whites, albeit for different reasons. We see interest convergence taking place as black interests in leaving the country of their oppression for a new land with the hopes for freedom and opportunity aligned with white interests to rid themselves of the presence of free black people and preserve their ideal of the country. Thomas Jefferson, wanting to avoid free and, from his perspective, inferior black people living unprepared and idle in the country, believed that gradual emancipation and black colonization was a solution for slavery. Many white abolitionists such as Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, advocated for black colonization from a place of seeking to protect the souls of white slave owners, and also believing that because blacks were an inferior race, it would be in the best interests of white people for black people to leave the country. President Lincoln's statements about the suffering of freed blacks and hostile whites living together reflected the same. He saw colonization as a solution to slavery and believed that blacks and whites living together was impossible. On the contrary, though, we also see interest convergence at work in this story in the fact that when black people's interests in pursuing freedom diverge or conflict with white interests, for whatever reasons, black people face retrenchment and opposition from whites. You see this in several different places throughout the story. When the pro-immigration group introduced the legislation for the reparation subsidy, they were met with opposition from whites and anti-immigration groups who said that the legislation was unconstitutional because it offered benefits on the basis of a recipient's race without providing a specific reason or justification concerning past or present discrimination for the program. Bell cites the 1989 case of the City of Richmond versus the J.A. Crossing Company, when the City of Richmond established regulations requiring companies receiving city contracts to subcontract or set aside 30% of their business to minority businesses. The J.A. Crossing Company sued the city after it failed to follow the 30% rule, stating that the regulations were a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the J.A. Crossing Company and stated that because the program was not tied to any specific past or present discrimination against minorities in the construction industry, it was a violation of the 14th Amendment because it didn't withstand the strict scrutiny standards of the court involving racial classifications. 
In her comments while delivering the opinion of the court, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor stated that all classifications based on race must be supported by a compelling government interest and withstand strict scrutiny. The Supreme Court of the United States finds that the plan failed to consider race-neutral measures that would encourage more minority participation in the construction program. Also, the 30% quota allowed by the plan was not narrowly tailored to any goal except perhaps outright racial balancing. Justice O'Connor went on to say that even if the level of equal protection scrutiny could be said to vary according to the ability of different groups to defend their interests in the representative process, heightened scrutiny would still be appropriate in the circumstances of this case, since blacks comprise approximately 50% of the city's population and hold five of nine seats on the city council, thereby raising the concern that the political majority may have acted to disadvantage a minority based on unwarranted assumptions or incomplete facts. Justice O'Connor's statement was the equivalent of claiming reverse racism, and because Richmond was a majority black city with whites in the minority, she believed that the interests of whites needed to be protected, even though whites held 99% of the contracting business in the city, and Richmond spent less than a percentage of its contracting dollars with minority-owned businesses. And this wasn't the only affirmative action case in which O'Connor held to this kind of strict scrutiny concerning racial classifications. And it's also not the only case in which she expressed concern for how affirmative action would affect whites. Bell identifies this as a prime example of interest convergence as well, where equality for blacks would only be achieved as long as it converged with the interests of whites. Bell quotes Professor Joan Tarpley, who said concerning Justice O'Connor that her decisions in this area reflect her commitment as a protector of the institutionalized rights of whites. And Bell states concerning another affirmative action case that when she, O'Connor, perceived an affirmative action plan that minimizes the importance of race while offering maximum protection to whites and those aspects of society which she identifies, she supported it. Diversity in the classroom, the work floor, and the military, not the need to address past and continuing racial barriers, gained her vote. In his dissent of the Richmond versus the J.A. Cross and Company decision, Justice Thurgood Marshall stated that preventing initiatives such as the set-aside program for lack of a showing of past discrimination in the area only perpetuates racial discrimination because it suggests that racial discrimination no longer exists. So when you look at these programs, such as the plan instituted by the city of Richmond, which was aimed at helping minority businesses and business owners who've historically faced the evils of segregation, violence, and racial discrimination, and when that pursuit for equality is challenged in the courts as being unconstitutional, it's black people who will ultimately continue to face the perpetual effects of racial discrimination and the effects of the economic restrictions that held back their ancestors. What the Afrolandica awakening highlights is how a race-neutral or colorblind society with things like affirmative action programs that promote equality for black people can and often does hinder progress for blacks and protects and perpetuates the status quo of whites.
So the next opposition that Bell highlights in the story comes from whites who took exception to black people's new confidence at the emergence of Afrolantica. Heightened racial tensions, race riots, and attacks on black communities developed because whites perceived the opportunity as a loss for them and a dangerous advantage for blacks, Bell stated. This points to the response of white Southerners to the Underground Railroad, where large rewards were offered for runaway slaves and slave catchers could abduct even free blacks and return them to slavery. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was probably the greatest opposition to the Underground Railroad because it gave federal assistance to slave owners attempting to recapture their slaves. It punished those who harbored slaves and blacks couldn't even testify in their defense of whether they had been falsely captured or not. During the Great Migration, whites began terrorizing black communities like the ones we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, along with flourishing black communities like Tulsa, Oklahoma and Wilmington, North Carolina. In the North, in response to blacks moving to northern cities, white flight took place in cities and suburban areas, and racial discrimination impacted housing and employment with blacks posing competition to whites and immigrants for neighborhoods and industrial jobs. Overall, these movements are examples that historically black success is often met with white opposition and black success has been hindered or destroyed not because of the lack of ability or the personal responsibility of black people, but largely because of white supremacy. The story goes on to highlight the response of conservatives who believe that Afrolantica would become another Cuba and would align with other third world nations against the United States. They attempted to launch a conspiracy about the Afrolantica immigration movement that claimed that Afrolantica blacks, along with other colonized colored peoples of the world, would rise up against the U.S. And this points to the time that when blacks in the 20th century began populating northern states, whites began inciting riots and attacking black communities like in the red summer of 1919, where riots broke out in 18 states, a thousand black families lost their homes to fires, and 23 blacks were murdered. And during this time, news outlets reported that it was Soviet communism, not racism, that was the cause behind the riots. In the post-World War I society, and during the first Red Scare, it was communism that became the scapegoat, communism that was seeping into the country and influencing blacks, who some whites believe had been content with their inferior status, and instigating the racial unrest among them. These conspiratorial tactics continued even through the Second World War, and after that into what's been called the McCarthy era of the late 1940s and 50s. It was during this time that there were some black leaders and activists and artists like Paul Robeson, Richard Wright, Claude McKay, and Langston Hughes who were put under FBI surveillance and threatened with the loss of their passports. After expressing that he felt more at home in Soviet Russia than in the United States, Paul Robeson's passport was revoked in 1955 and he was forbidden from leaving the United States and traveling abroad, killing his career. We see an echo of this reality in the story as fearful whites who perceived Afrolantica to be an economic and political threat placed numerous governmental and institutional barriers in the way of black people who were seeking to leave the country, including warning black people that they might be sacrificing their citizenship by moving and threatening that they may never be able to return to the country even to visit. They also filed civil suits and criminal charges that point back to what UNIA founder Marcus Garvey endured after he proposed blacks leaving the country. 
Like in much of his other stories, Interest Convergence stands in the center, exposing that in America, there's a continued historical pattern of retrenchment that always follows black progress. And that because of the permanence of racism, this pattern is one that continues to keep blacks in a subordinated status, even while gains for black people are being made. Even if there was a new continent that emerged for black people out of the ocean, white supremacy would do whatever it could to protect its own interests, either by supporting or stifling black people to maintain the status quo. But the beautiful part of this story is what comes at the end. After enduring the blows of systemic racism and the hindrances of white supremacy, and just as the hopeful settlers look towards their new home, Afro-Atlantica sinks back into the ocean. And while it may seem like a moment of despair and dashed hopes for black people, it's actually a prophetic moment of a realized potential, a kind of culmination of what these historic movements hope to achieve. We'll talk about it more in a minute. So honestly, how would you feel watching that brand new continent with all of its potential and all of its opportunities sink back into the ocean? If I'm honest, I'd be devastated. At least initially, I'd feel defeated, consigned to the all too familiar ways of my former country, and feeling like the wind had been knocked out of the sails of my blackness. But that's not what happens in the story. In the last paragraph, describing both those blacks who sailed back from Afro-Atlantica and those who waited to receive them on America's shores, Bell states this. He said that their faces glowed with self-confidence as they walked erect and proud down the gangplanks the next day when the ships returned to their home ports. The black men and women waiting to greet them, expecting to commiserate with them, were instead inspired. The spirit of cooperation that had engaged the few hundred thousand blacks spread to others as they recalled the tenacity for humane life which had enabled generations of blacks to survive all efforts to dehumanize or obliterate them. Infectious, their renewed tenacity reinforced their sense of possessing themselves. Blacks held fast, like a talesman, the quiet conviction that Afrolantica had not been mere mirage, that somewhere in the word America, somewhere irrevocable and profound, there is, as well, the word Afrolantica. And so instead of languishing in defeat, black people were inspired. And the story actually doesn't end here. It picks up again in another one of Bell's books, conveniently titled Afrolantica Legacies, where in the prologue, Bell continues the story of these returned settlers and unpacks what lies beneath their newfound inspiration. He says that they discovered as well that they had actually possessed the qualities of liberation they had hoped to realize on their new homeland. Experiencing this was, they all agreed, an Afrolantica awakening, a liberation, not of place, but of mind. And this, from Bell's perspective, is the turning point for black Americans who must continue to exist in a society which seeks to subjugate them. This self-realization of blacks in this moment on America's shores would lead them to see that this country that constantly saw blacks as second-class citizens actually needed and depended on the presence of black people. From there, Bell questions the very concept of whiteness. What does it mean and what is it worth without blackness? What if black people no longer recognized or gave credence to the value of whiteness and how it plays out in our society? 
Later on in the book, Bell refers to white skin color as a property right, something that he expands on more in another parable titled Xerxes and the Affirmative Action Myth, and also something that Professor Shell Harris discusses at length in her article titled Whiteness as Property. Bell views whiteness as a property right, displayed throughout the history of this country with its own assumptions, privileges, and benefits that has been recognized by black people and many others in this country. But much like Europeans when they arrived to this land and disregarded the property rights of the native peoples of this land, black people must disregard the property rights of whiteness instead of accepting them as a norm. So does this disregard for the property right of whiteness look like physical violence or outgunning and overpowering whiteness as whites did to both the property rights of Africans and indigenous peoples around the world through violent takeover and colonialism? Is Bell suggesting violation of the property right of whiteness? No, he's referring to a mental liberation or even deeper, a spiritual transformation. What he says, transforming subordination of the body into triumph of the spirit. He goes on and states this, that we blacks do not possess great firepower. No, but we possess a greater power. It is the power of ourselves. It is the power of right. It is the power that comes when we recognize that our salvation, not in heaven, but right here on earth, comes from a sense of pride in our self-worth. It comes when we determine not to sacrifice our self-worth in search of well-being or out of fear of loss. Recognition of self-worth provides a satisfaction that money can't buy and prestige can't protect. This kind of posture and attitude is what Bell believes is defiance, even in the face of racism's permanence. It's how to live as black people in the face of hostility. But as it pertains to the story, from this posture come several standards that the new settlers sought to teach those who didn't join them on the voyage and those who would come after them. Standards about race and blackness in America that would shape and inform their everyday lives. They came up with these seven standards and called them the Afrolantica Legacies, seven standards for racial preservation. Number one, no matter how justified by the racial injustices they are intended to remedy, Civil rights policies, including affirmative action, are implemented for blacks only when they further the interests of whites. Thus, when a society's rejection of a policy threatens progress towards our equality goals, that policy should be amended or replaced. Number two, service in the cause of truth and justice is no less worthy of praise because it is misunderstood, misused, or condemned. Number three, coalition building is an enterprise with valuable potential as long as its pursuant does not obscure the basic fact, nobody can free us but ourselves. Number four, an individual whose actions against racism threaten the powerful must be prepared to endure both the condemnation of enemies and the abandonment by friends. Number five, Continued resistance by the powerless eventually triumphs over power, and thus oppression must be resisted even when opposition seems useless. Number six, the courage to confront racism, while worthy of praise, should not obscure the fact that the powerful can employ our confrontative statements 
to serve their ends as effectively as they can those deplorable self-blaming comments by blacks. Number seven, life seems to favor those in power, while it seldom rewards triumphs with good works. The righteous must rely on their faith and champion justice, even in a seemingly lost cause. In summary, these seven statements are about black pride. They're expressions of what it means to be black in America, a people who survive amidst subjugation, who are accountable to themselves and singularly focused on their flourishing, even in their collaborative interactions with others. A people who stand firm against racism, even when it seems futile. Each of these statements reflects the stances that black people have taken throughout the history of this country that have contributed to our survival. Bell believes that it is through continually holding these precepts in our mind collectively as a people and then teaching them to each other that whether or not we see the opposition of white supremacy topple, we remain confident in our self-worth and our self-respect as a people and we can overcome the particular racial barriers of our time. I'll leave you with the words of Geneva Crenshaw, who in the book Afro-Lantica Legacies distinguishes blackness from whiteness as something that's rooted in a completely different foundation. She says this, blackness is a concept distilled from the degradation of slavery and the exploitation of racism. It is a reminder that black and odious are not identical terms. The concept of blackness reassures us that we are worthy, despite the hostility to our presence we endure, the insensitivity to our pain we abide, and the inner rage we deflect, all too often on ourselves. Black pride, though, is more than a slogan. It stands as a symbol for our core values as a people, values that we must practice as well as preach. These values include self-respect earned through outreach to others and recognition that black women are the key to our survival. We must support our institutions, schools, churches, and businesses as viable vehicles for learning, worship, and economic development. If we challenge property rights and whiteness, the very essence of racism, as our forebears challenged first slavery and then segregation, we like they can overcome the racial restraints of our time. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to the Space Traders podcast. I hope that this has been informative and helpful to you. Please leave a rating or review and share the podcast with others. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts or any feedback that you have. Uh, this is actually our last episode and it's the last month of the year. So please enjoy the holidays. Have a great new year and uh, we'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.